This is History West Midlands. Early on the 1st of July 1916, men of the British Army in France nervously huddled in their trenches, waiting for the order to attack the Germans. Unaware that they were about to be thrown into one of the bloodiest conflicts in history, the Battle of the Somme. Amongst these three million khaki-clad figures were the men of the South Staffordshire Regiment, many of whom came from the poorest back streets of the black country. These were men like William Pincher, whose whole life up until now had been spent in the poverty of Woodbank in Darleston, and who, like his comrades, had laboured long hours in the smoke and heat of the forges, workshops and factories of Britain's industrial heartland for very little reward. How would these men cope with the horrors of the coming months? To find out, social historian and author Professor Carl Chin follows the often tragic story of William and the South Staffs. William Pincher was like so many other English working chaps. He put a lot into life, but life never gave him much back, bar for hardships aplenty. A Darleston man and the son of Thomas and Sarah Ann Pincher, he was grafting as a labourer in a tubes warehouse from at least the age of 14. By the time he was a man, in the early years of the 20th century, he would have been lucky to have earned 17 or 18 shillings a week, less than a pound, for heaving and humping 10 hours or more a day for five and a half days a week. Such a meagre income put him well below the poverty line, which Seabone Roundtree set in 1901 at just above a pound, at 21 shillings and eightpence a week, for a man, woman and three children. And let's be clear about this, Roundtree's poverty line did not mean that you could enjoy life. Far from it. It was a level which just about allowed a bloke to earn enough to maintain mere physical efficiency and nothing more. In one of the wealthiest countries of the world, hundreds of thousands of families had to get by on a paltry sum that would never give their members a quality of life. They could just about scratch enough to feed, clothe and house themselves and warm away the worst of the cold. Beset by short time and layoffs, labourers like William could never get ahead of themselves. They were always coming from behind. Continually buffeted by the storms of irregular earnings, their wives had to make do as best they could when money dried up. So they took in washing, went out charring, did homework, made and mended, and turned up meals from bacon bones, grey peas, oats, pot vegetables, and the offal that the better off shrank from as not worthy to eat. Despite all their clever coping strategies, too often those proud wenches had their pride forced back into their craw by having to fall into the unrelenting grasp of debt, fetching Sunday best to the pawn shop, getting tick from the huckster shop and such like. With an insufficient weekly income worsened by its precariousness, William and his wife Eliza had no choice but to rent a badly built and insanitary back house in number three court, Woodbank, Darleston. It probably had no gas and was lit either by paraffin or candles, whilst the lavatories would have been mid and privies shared with their neighbours. William and fellows like him must have had their fill of the inequalities that chained them to a life of toil and moil. 
but that was their bed and they lay on it, making it as best as they could. And you would have thought that they'd have had no time for England, an England in which the rich were so few and yet owned so much and in which the poor were so many and yet had so little. You would have been wrong. England failed the English poor, but the poor never failed England. For all its faults, they loved it still. They loved their land with a deep passion that was born out of their unbreakable bond with their street, their neighbourhood, their town, their county. That was their England. They would never let it down. And when the call came, they would enthusiastically do their duty to the amazement of the wealthy who could never comprehend why the English working class were so patriotic. William Pincher was one of that doughty and dogged breed. A part-time soldier with the territorial force of the 1st 5th South Staffordshire Regiment, he belonged to a battalion that recruited in the Walsall district. Probably he was on camp with his comrades at Towin in Wales when war was declared against Germany on the 4th of August 1914. Quickly called back, the battalion was mobilised and placed on a war footing along with the 1st 6th Battalion of the South Staffs, which took its men from Wolverhampton. As a territorial, William did not have to go overseas. But like the overwhelming majority of part-timers, he readily volunteered to serve his country in Flanders. After strenuous training, the two battalions formed part of the 137th Infantry Brigade of the 46th North Midland Division and as such were part of the first complete division of territorials to take the field. Commanded by Colonel A.R. Crawley, the 1st 5th Battalion landed in France on the 3rd and 5th of March 1915. Soon after, they were sent to the Armentieres district where they received their first baptism of fire. Over the next few months, the battalion was moved first to the British lines facing Messines and then to the Ypres salients where the Allied forces had pushed a bulge into the German lines. Thence, they were sent southwards where they fought in the Battle of Luce, attacking the Hohenzollern redoubt on the 13th of October 1915. According to James P. Jones, who wrote the history of the South Staffordshire Regiment in 1923, this was their first and most trying test. The Hohenzollern Redoubt was a powerful fortification. Located on a slight slope that pushed into no man's land, it gave the Germans a fearsome field of fire over the British. The redoubt itself was linked to the German line behind it by two well-protected trenches called Little Willie and Big Willie, this last of which was partly held by the British. Only a trench block formed a barrier to the Germans. The South Staffs were enjoined to capture Big Willie and then move on to take a defensive site called Foss 8, a mine at the base of a slag heap. A day or so before the attack, Corporal Jack Shipley of the 1st 5th South Staffordshire Regiment sent a letter to his family. He stated that, I'm writing with very mixed feelings. I cannot say what may happen, but whatever comes, I shall not budge. If I do not return from the attack, think of me as doing my duty, not a slacker. That was the overarching imperative that motivated so many English soldiers not to be seen as not doing your best and not to let down your chums. On the 13th of October, the 1st 5th South Staffs and the 1st 5th North Staffs led the assault. As soon as they lifted themselves from their trenches, according to the regimental history, they came under a deadly crossfire from three sides. With a rush, they captured the main trench, but owing to heavy machine gun fire, swift progress was impossible, and the attack resolved itself into a struggle of bombing parties. 
Resolutely, the South Staffs battled along Big Willie and... Far into the night, this soldier's battle continued. For it had become an affair of individual gallantry and endurance, rather than any battle plan. Here, for three days, they fought and endured like the heroes of old, until they were relieved by the 2nd Guards Brigade. Casualties were heavy. Of the two companies of the 1st, 5th South Staffs, which had held a section of Big Willie, every single officer and man was hit when they advanced. Of the battalion as a whole, on the 13th of October, 46 men were killed. Five later died of their wounds. 219 were wounded and 52 were missing, believed killed. That was over 300 casualties at a time when most battalions had between 650 and 750 men. William Pincher survived this dreadful battle in which one out of every two of his pals were killed or wounded. From Luz, the battalion went to the trenches at Neuve Chapelle, where things were quieter, and then was sent to Egypt at the end of 1915. So soon as ever they had arrived, the men were fetched back to France and the Valley of the Somme, where there was then little fighting. Still, as the battalion's war diary reveals, there were sad losses of lives. On the 28th of February 1916, There was a tragic accident which killed one man, another died of his wounds, and 12 others were wounded. Number 1 platoon was practising throwing grenades with live ammunition. A number 5 Mills grenade exploded in the hand of the sergeant instructor as soon as he took out the pin. Sergeant Pritchard miraculously escaped with only a wound. The men who died were 983 Private W. Hoff and 7986 Sergeant Sidney Rooker, 23. During March and April 1916, the 1st 5th fought alongside the 1st 6th in the Vimy Ridge area. Mine warfare was a major problem in this vicinity, as the South Staffs found to their cost. On the 4th of April, the war diary records that... The enemy exploded a mine on the south side of B4 Crater. This was immediately followed by a second explosion southwest of the same crater. Parties rushing into the crater could not enter. Trenches were badly damaged and several men were in a state of collapse from the fumes. The enemy opened heavy fire with rifle grenades and trench mortars from a sap on the right side of the crater. Also machine gun fire from the direction of point five. We established a bombing post and placed a Lewis gun on the northern lip of the crater and dug a communication trench round. Casualties, Lieutenant Alfred Smith killed and second Lieutenant Wilkinson wounded. Five other ranks killed. 14 wounded, 6 missing, 1 slightly wounded and remained at duty. In May, the battalion marched to the Somme itself, where death overshadowed the land and its river. On the 26th of June, a supposedly quiet day, the Germans searched the British ground with its artillery and... Between 11am and 12 noon, enemy shelled 41 trench. Casualties killed, 263 Private Davis E, 8878... Private Worthington S. Wounded, 9862, Private Britain J. 9779, Private Bird J. 857, Private Allsop S. 9501, Private Middlebrook J. 512, Private Bullock W. Then, on the 1st of July 1916, the 1st 5th South Staffs fought on the bloody first day of the Battle of the Somme. At 7.30am, after an intense artillery barrage followed by a smoke barrage, hundreds of thousands of British, Empire and French troops clambered out of their trenches and walked towards the German lines. Amongst them was William Pincher. 
A heavy haze overlaid the Somme Valley, but as the morning strengthened, so the mist vanished. The clear sky beckoned the sun, which waxed in strength as the hours went on. After a week of thunderstorms, heavy rain, cloud and high winds, at last it looked set for a fine day of weather. A fine day that would become ingrained in the consciousness of the British people as the worst of days. A fine day that would witness the deaths of tens of thousands of fine men. A fine day when the youth of whole towns and districts were slaughtered. A fine day that became a bloody, tragic and shocking day from which so many families would never recover. For a week beforehand, the mighty forces of nature had seemed to battle with the destructiveness of mankind. The clashing clouds that had rent the air had been overwhelmed by the booming of a massive British artillery barrage. It had begun on June the 24th, and by 7.30am on July the 1st, over one and a half million shells had been fired from artillery of all types. The British High Command had invested much in its policy of pounding the German frontline trenches, believing that this would kill, wound or cow the defenders into submission. These expectations of Lieutenant General Rawlinson, General Officer commanding the British Fourth Army that launched the offensive at the Somme, and General Sir Douglas Haig, the Commander-in-Chief of all British forces, were dashed in a devastating way. Parts of the German front line were indeed destroyed, but the expected obliteration along a 16-mile front failed. The British had only 467 heavy guns that could fire the high explosives that were so essential to badly damaging the German defences. And what is more, of the 12,000 tonnes of shells fired, a mere 900 tonnes were actually high explosives. Moreover, these guns were spread out along the length of the front and were not concentrated on particular targets whilst two-thirds of the shells fired by the British artillery was shrapnel, much of which was substandard American manufacture and did not explode. Designed to maim, shrapnel was all but useless against strong earthworks, protected by barbed wire that was so thick that it kept out the light. Standing in the trenches were a few regular divisions that had survived Mons, Ypres and other fierce battles. But, the majority of the divisions were made up either of territorial battalions, of former part-time soldiers like William Pincher, or else of volunteers who had harked to Kitchener's call to fight for their country and who had joined up with their pals in their scores upon scores of thousands. Whatever their background, the 120,000 British troops awaited the dreaded order to go over the top, unaware that the Germans had mostly withdrawn for protection into 30-foot-deep dugouts. They would emerge from these to mow down the advancing British. Like their comrades in other regiments, the men of the 1st Battalion the South Staffordshire Regiment girded themselves mentally and emotionally for the forthcoming fray but they must have been heartened by the ferocity of the British barrage whilst yet feeling sorry for those huddled below it. James P. Jones, the historian of the regiment, captured the immense power of that attack. The shellfire at the Battle of Luce had exceeded anything done in previous wars, but even that, big as it was, was merely a trifle compared to the opening of the Battle of the Somme. No such colossal expenditure of shells had ever been attempted before, much less dreamt of. The very earth rocked with the violence of the concussion, 
and the noise was so deafening that it was difficult to hear men shout even a yard away. Yet, strangest of all, a lark singing overhead was heard clear and distinct, and was much commented upon by the men. Tremors from the booming guns behind them and the bombing ahead of them poured back into the British trenches and rushed up into the bodies of the soldiers. With five minutes to go before the attack, officers warned their men that zero hour was imminent. Finally, they blew their whistles and with bayonets fixed, the Tommies scrambled up and out of their trenches into an inferno of machine gun fire and shells. As they began to march or run across the devastated, cratered landscape of no man's land, the British artillery laid down a creeping barrage. But the German machine gunners now came up from their concrete shelters and began a withering fire. It was backed up by a heavy artillery bombardment. The official German account stated that despite this, the strong, usually young and well-armed British soldier followed his officers blindly and the officers, active and personally brave, went ahead of their men in battle with great courage. In too many places, the coils of barbed wire had not been blown away. Thousands of men, pierced and held fast by the barbs, were mown down by the Germans. Here and there, gaps had been made, but as the British troops funneled through them, they were cut down. It was horrific. Grievous were the losses of the 1st, 5th and 1st, 6th battalions of the South Staffordshire Regiment. On that doom-laden day of the 1st of July, they were ordered to attack Gomcourt, an enemy salient that bulged out from the German lines into no man's land. It was a diversion to draw German troops away from Sir to the south. The two divisions attacked to the north and south of the heavily fortified village and aimed to link up behind it, thus cutting off the Germans. The plan failed. After the Great War, a committee of the officers of the first six wrote up the battalion's war history. At the time, even the commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel J.H. Thursfield, was unaware of the reasons for the attack. Was it merely a blind to cover more important operations proceeding elsewhere? Or was it thought that the capture of this stronghold would weaken the enemy's position further south and be necessary if a general advance were to take place? This was, though, the first attacking wave of an offensive that was over 20 miles wide and which lasted until the 18th of November. William Pincher was in C Company, which was to follow the lead companies and make good their gains. Unfortunately, the Germans were well prepared. Alerted by the eight-day-long British preliminary bombardment, they retaliated with their own destructive artillery barrage as the British troops moved forwards. A few days before that attack, on June the 29th, which was originally the date for the start of the Somme offensive, the first six had joined with their North Staffordshire fellows to dig an advanced assault trench. This was needed because although the British line mostly was 250 yards from the German front, it fell away to the left. Engineers had taped out the new line and detailed preparations were made for the new trench and communication trenches leading to it. Protected by... A large covering party comprising the greater part of the 5th South Staffords. The two other Staffordshire battalions set to. The work was to be completed in one night. Silence was essential in the darkness. Since the slightest sound of digging would have given the position away and, owing to the close proximity of the enemy, made the task impossible. Fortunately it was fine and the ground was easy. 
and within half an hour every man had dug himself in, and by the time the troops had to withdraw in the morning, a continuous line had been formed, from four to five feet deep, with the necessary communication trenches. The new line, however, was not completed, and the next night work had begun again. A sharp lookout was kept by the troops holding the sector, to see whether the enemy would take any action when he found, as he was bound to do, that this new line had been formed. Conditions were bad, though, that night of the 30th of June. It had rained heavily, and the trenches were almost waist-deep in water. The best that the troops could do was to bail the water out with their steel helmets. Rain was pouring in torrents, and from the exposed position in the front line, it was difficult to keep telephonic communication with the artillery. Then, at 12.20am, the enemy guns opened, and for a quarter of an hour or so, a heavy fire was directed on our working parties. Those who were not prevented by the depth of water managed to take cover in the new trench. Others who were caught in the open suffered heavily. The battalion lost many good men, and we had received proof of the strength and accuracy of the enemy artillery. The two-day delay in the start of the battle was unfortunate for us. Our artillery preparations were such as to leave no room for doubt in the enemy mind that an attack was contemplated, and each day's delay detracted from the element of surprise. In fact, by the time the battle began, the enemy had replaced its troops with the 2nd Guards Reserve Division. Thus, the British aim was achieved of having drawn cracked German soldiers away from the south. Now, as zero hour on the 1st of July approached, the four companies of the first six each had a frontage of 75 yards and were disposed in four lines of platoons which were to follow at 80 yards distance. The six North Staffs were on the left and the first fifth South Staffs behind. More than a dozen waves of various units were positioned from the line back. And it was anticipated that they would follow one another so as to cross the advance trench at intervals of one minute each. The assaulting troops were heavily equipped especially the fourth wave, which was detailed to carry a supply of bombs, packed in loads for two men to carry. At 6.25am, an intense British bombardment began, but... The enemy replied vigorously, both with his field guns and howitzers, and revealed the true strength of his artillery. His machine guns were also active, and directed an accurate fire on the parapets more especially where the communication trenches led from the front line to the advanced trench. One of these machine guns was in the northwest corner of Goncourt village and could not be silenced. It must have been responsible for a large number of the casualties in the advance. Shortly before 7.30 the attack was launched and the movement was carried out as it had been in practice, but the enemy's fire was intense and from the very start casualties were heavy. The smokescreen, after settling down, drifted parallel with the front instead of towards the enemy, with the result that when halfway across no man's land, the assaulting waves came within full view of the Germans. On reaching the wire, men looked in vain for the openings they had expected, but although it had been caught by the British artillery, no guns could remove it, and it remained in such masses as effectually to prevent a passage. However, one gap had been made, and some of D Company managed to gain a footing in the enemy's front line, but were soon outnumbered and fell. The bombers under Lieutenant Flaxman also made for the gap, but the wire prevented them from getting to grips and they were shot down in the open. On the right flank, C Company, including William Pincher, engaged the enemy. But they could make no headway and suffered heavily. For the rest, those men who passed through the barrages and escaped the machine gun fire 
could make no progress past the enemy's wire. As for A and B companies, they found no gaps. As Jones, the regimental historian, wrote, From dawn till long afternoon, our men endured this awful fire. But the ground penetrated could not be held, and by the evening the brigade was back in their old trenches. Many men died horribly. Caught on the barbed wire, they were cut apart by German machine gun fire. Casualties were severe. Of the platoon commanders, only a few escaped. Lieutenant Harley and Lieutenant Dickinson were both shot down at the German wire, and Lieutenants Flaxman, Johnson and Page were killed in a similar manner. Lieutenant Adams was shot through the knee, and in crawling back to our lines was sniped continuously, one bullet striking the magazine of his revolver, which he wore at his side. Overall, the men of the first six suffered terribly. There were 239 casualties, most of whom occurred within the space of a few minutes. This represented a large proportion of the fighting strength actually engaged in the attack. The first fifth South Staffs were as badly affected, with 219 men killed or wounded. William Pincher was amongst the dead. He was 29. His body was never found, but he's remembered on the memorial to the missing at Thiepval. William Pincher was one of a number of men from Darleston to die on that day of slaughter. Three of them were with the 1st Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment. They were Albert Aston, William King and John Middleton. A haulier with a wife and two children, Albert Aston was born in Wensbury but lived in King Street, Darleston. William King was born in Dudley and John Middleton was also born elsewhere in Willenall. The 1st Battalion of the South Staffordshire Regiment had been prominent in one of the few successes of the day. It was part of the 7th Division, made up mostly of regular battalions which had experienced hard fighting since the early days of the war. Their target was the village of Mametz. According to Jones, when the whistles blew to attack... On each flank, from Freecourt on the left to the country towards Montauban on the right, a long line of bayonets surged forwards. A lively machine-gun fire and shrapnel greeted them. But the 1st Battalion never faltered. Amazingly, the men covered over 1,200 yards in about 30 minutes. The 1st platoon into Mametz was led by 2nd Lieutenant S. Potter in a rapid advance that swept through the village. They then dug themselves in on the farther side. Although surrounded by the enemy, they maintained their position under heavy fire until noon, when the rest of the battalion finally succeeded in joining them. 2nd Lieutenant S. Potter was awarded the DSO for conspicuous gallantry, as his citation read. His achievement was... Of great tactical importance. Later, he took part in another assault on another position, which was taken owing to his personal gallantry and fine leadership. There was a large number of Germans in the village and the rest of the battalion advanced as if on parade. They swept forward in regular lines and to one who followed their track, the regularity of their advance was astonishing for the dead lay aligned as if on some parade. Many prisoners were found in their dugouts, men dazed and bewildered with the awful hell of the bombardment they had endured. They said it was not war but murder. They forgot what they had done when they held the whip hand with their artillery in the earlier days of the war and did not like the dose of their own medicine they had to swallow in this attack. A trench called Danzig Alley ran through the middle of Mametz. 
The defenders put up a strong resistance and German counterattacks were launched, supported by heavy shelling and machine gun fire. They were held off. Danzig Alley was captured, cellars and strong points were taken and slowly the village was secured so that by the middle of the afternoon most of Mametz was in British hands. The heat was intense and the men's tunics were black with sweat but... At about 1pm the 1st Battalion surged forward again and Lieutenant Seed Trafford led a most gallant attack on Bunny Alley, a trench just in rear of Mametz, clearing it and taking about 200 prisoners. Finally, after ten and a half hours fighting, along with the 22nd Manchesters, the first staffs took their target. The price, though, was high. Only 11 out of 21 officers who had gone over the top were left, whilst over 400 of the ranks were dead or wounded. This was half of the total force of the 1st Battalion South Staffordshire Regiment. Of the three Darlaston men who died in the action, Private Aston is buried where he fell in Danzig Alley Cemetery, whilst Privates King and Middleton have no known graves and are listed on the memorial to the missing at Thiepel. By the end of the first bloody day of the Battle of the Somme, British casualties totalled over 57,000 men. Almost 20,000 of them were dead. The battle went on for another 140 days. Tens of thousands more British and Empire troops died. Over 73,000 have no known graves and are commemorated on the Thiepval Memorial. Amongst them are the names of 604 men of the South Staffordshire Regiment. In Darleston, the War Memorial commemorates 84 men from the town who were killed at the Battle of the Somme in 1916. One of those who died on the first day was Alfred Bird whose last resting place is Knightsbridge Cemetery at Mesnil Martinsart. Named after a communication trench, the cemetery was begun at the outset of the Battle of the Somme and was used until July 1918. In total, there are 548 First World War burials here. 141 of them are unidentified. The son of Mary and George and married to Kate, Alfred Bird lived at 14 New Place, Catherine's Cross, he joined up in Darleston and served first with the Highland Light Infantry before he was transferred to the 1st Battalion King's Own Scottish Borderers. By the later part of 1915, and certainly from 1916, the casualties suffered by the British Army had been so horrendous that many men were not able to join their local regiment. Instead, they were sent to whatever regiment needed them. On the 1st of July 1916, the King's Own Scottish Borderers were part of an attack on Bowman's Hamel. Despite the bravery of the British and the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, which had the terrible casualty rate of 91%, the target was not taken. Alfred Bird died in this action. Two of the men from Darleston also died that first day of the Battle of the Somme. They were Joseph Cattell, who lived in Addenbrook Street, and Harrington Leonard Eaton, whose father was the headmaster of All Saints Day School in Whitton Street. Hailing from a Scottish family, Joseph Cattell served with the Glasgow Commercials, a battalion of the Highland Light Infantry. Soon after the attack had begun, they captured the Leipzig Redoubt and were then ordered to advance on the Hindenburg Trench, 120 yards away. By now, the Germans were prepared and the Scots were beaten back with terrible losses. Joseph Cattell was amongst them. He too has no known grave and is remembered on the memorial to the missing at Thiepval. Harrington Eaton had enlisted in West Bromwich and after a time with the South Staffs was assigned to the new 10th Lincolnshires. 
They were given what now seems an impossible task. They were ordered to cover 2,000 yards by shortly after 8 o'clock in the morning and by an hour later they were expected to have captured four lines of German trenches. Mowed down by machine guns, burnt to death by flamethrowers, blown up by artillery bombs, the Lincolnshires were devastated. There were 500 casualties. Harrington Eaton was one of them. Age 20, he is buried in a French national cemetery and is commemorated on a plaque in All Saints Church, Darleston. May he and all those who died in that awful Battle of the Somme rest in peace. Visit our website www.historywm.com to watch a fascinating series of films about the hidden home front in the First World War, made in cooperation with the University of Worcester. You will also find other films in which military historian Dr Spencer Jones at the University of Wolverhampton discusses key events in the British Army's campaigns. Don't miss future podcasts, films and articles. Register for our newsletter and download the History West Midlands On Air app at the iTunes App Store.